Welcome to Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. A farmer's horse ran away. The neighbor said, How terrible! The farmer said, Perhaps. The horse came back and brought a wild horse with it. The neighbor said, How wonderful! The farmer said, Perhaps. The farmer's son was thrown from the back of the wild horse and broke his leg. The neighbors said, How awful! The farmer said, Perhaps. The army came conscripting all young men for war, but seeing the farmer's son's leg was broken, they did not recruit him. The neighbor said, That's fantastic! The farmer said, Perhaps. And on it goes. You get the idea. As the story progresses, its content changes the significance of what came before it. This is true in many stories, and it is true in the story told in the Gospel of Matthew. The passage that we are looking at in this episode is a perfect example. To truly understand the power and irony of what is happening in this scene, it really helps to know not only what has already happened, but what will happen in the story. Which is ironic in itself, because it is one of those passages that is often read in complete isolation, with consequences that have reverberated for centuries. My name is Bert Newton, and this is Episode 42 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Let's read the first part of the passage, Matthew 16, verses 13 to 15. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So Jesus and his disciples travel into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Where is Caesarea Philippi? What is this place? Why are they there? Caesarea Philippi was in the far northern end of Galilee, so far, in fact, that it was sometimes considered part of Syria. This is the deepest Jesus and his disciples go into Gentile territory. This area was previously known as Panaeus because it was associated with the Greek god Pan, and there was a shrine to Pan there. Pan was the god of flocks and shepherds. We've seen that the image of the shepherd is important in this story. In 20 BCE, Herod the Great acquired the territory of Panaeus and built a temple to Augustus Caesar there. Remember, Augustus Caesar was the emperor on the throne when Jesus was born and the first emperor to be called Son of God. Then when Jesus was a teenager, Herod's son Philip renamed the town Caesarea Philippi in honor of Augustus. So that's where they are, in the territory of the god Pan, the god of flocks and shepherds. 
in the shadow of a temple where Augustus Caesar, the first Roman emperor to be called Son of God, is worshipped. It is in the shadow of this temple that Jesus is, for only the second time in the story, proclaimed by human characters to be Son of God, specifically Son of the Living God, perhaps in contrast with the God being worshipped in the temple who is actually dead. It doesn't say that they enter the town. I imagine that for them this is a foray deep into enemy territory. The enemy is not ordinary Gentiles, the peasantry, the Gentile peasantry. The enemy is the empire. I imagine them hunkered down outside of town, maybe on a hillside, where they can see the town, where they can see this temple of the imperial cult. The text doesn't tell us that anything happens there except this declaration that Jesus is the Son of the living God. The only thing that happens there is this declaration. That seems to be the whole point of the passage. One thing that a lot of readers miss, because the text doesn't say this, but the original audience would have known it, is that the same ruler who built this temple also built the temple in Jerusalem. Herod the Great built both temples. The temple in Jerusalem is not a place for worshiping the emperor, although there were attempts by the Romans to make it that, but it is a place that serves as the seat of the Roman puppet government. As I've mentioned before, temples were government buildings and priests were government officials, and the high priest in Jerusalem was, at this time, appointed by Rome. The author of Matthew goes out of his way to place Jesus and his disciples all the way up at the very northern end of Galilee, telling us that they are in the district of Caesarea Philippi, and the original audience understands. They understand that Caesarea Philippi is a place where a dead Roman emperor, called Son of God during his lifetime, is worshipped as a god. They know that the temple in which this worship takes place was built by the same man who built the temple in Jerusalem, and that before he built that temple, that same man had been crowned king of the Jews in Rome and came back to Israel and conquered it with Roman troops. So when Jesus is declared to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God, in that place, the audience understands that Jesus' mission is subversive to that whole system of domination, all of it. Then Jesus says something that has puzzled many and resulted in church schisms for centuries. Let's read the rest of the passage, verses 17 to 20. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Well, there's a lot there. Let's start at the beginning. He calls Simon son of Jonah. This is the first mention of Simon's father, if that's really what is going on here. I think this is more than naming Simon's father. 
The Gospel of John, specifically John 1.42, preserves a tradition that Simon's father is named John, not Jonah. But the two names are very close, and calling Simon son of Jonah links this passage back to the one just previous to this, where Jesus tells the Pharisees and Sadducees that the only sign that he will give them is the sign of Jonah. In that passage, which I covered in the last episode, Jesus tells the elite Pharisees and Sadducees that they always have their minds on heavenly things but can't see what is right in front of them. Jesus has been performing signs left and right, but they can't see them, and they demand a sign from Jesus. Jesus has been healing people, driving out demons, and feeding the crowds. But that doesn't matter to them because, like typical elites, they don't really value things that benefit the common people. They can't see the work that Jesus is doing, so the truth is hidden from their eyes, and the only sign that they will get is the sign of Jonah. Now Jesus calls Simon the son of Jonah, because Simon can see what is right in front of him. He has been seeing the signs. He has understood the work that Jesus is doing on the ground, the signs that God's kingdom is being established on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus tells him, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. In other words, no one had to tell him. But understanding the work that Jesus is doing on the ground, by seeing the signs, he has received a revelation from heaven. This peasant disciple understands what the elites cannot understand. While they spend all their time discussing the matters of heaven, they do not receive the revelation from heaven. But this peasant disciple receives that revelation because he can see and understand what is happening right in front of him. This revelation is specifically from the Father in heaven, who, as I've covered in previous episodes, displaces all the earthly fathers of the established households. In chapter 11, we saw that revelation from the Father in heaven went straight from God to Jesus, straight from the heavenly Father to this peasant rabbi, bypassing the fathers of the established households of the empire. And in turn, Jesus made this revelation known to the peasantry. So the revelation went from God to Jesus to the peasantry. The Greek word used in those verses in chapter 11 is the verbal form of the word apocalypsis, which is used in the literature from this period to speak of the revealing of God's plans to destroy the existing established order and to establish in its place a new society of justice. In chapter 11, this revelation was said to come straight to Jesus, who revealed it to the people. Now this revelation, this apocalypsis, same word, has come straight to Simon. Then he calls Simon by his other name, Peter, or renames him Peter, it's not clear which, and says, On this rock I will build my church. The play on words is that Peter is Petras. And the word for rock is Petra. Petra takes us back to chapter 7, where Jesus talked about the house built on Petra. I've talked in earlier episodes about house being a political term, signifying a nation, such as the house of Jacob or the house of Rome. 
Here, Jesus speaks instead of a church. This is the first time such a thing has been mentioned, and none of the other Gospels in the New Testament mention it. It seems like quite a leap from the context of Jesus and his movement to talking about the church, the faith community that develops later. And it is likely that this is something that reflects the author's time more than the time that the story takes place. But it is not quite the leap it might seem if we put aside the religious connotation of that word church. If we put aside the religious connotation that the word church means to us and consider what it might have meant in the context of a movement such as the one that Jesus is leading in this story. The Greek word Ecclesia, translated here as church, can mean any assembly of people, but it is also the technical word that was used for the assembly of the people in Greek cities to make decisions. The most extensive documentation of this gathering goes back to the popular assemblies of Athenian democracy. They were gatherings that met every 10 days in which all citizens had the right to vote, and collectively ratified decrees before they became laws. These local assemblies experienced their heyday during the Greek classical period, in which democracy began to flourish. And although they had lost a lot of their authority during the Roman period, the local assemblies were still operating, carrying on the flame of the hope of democracy. So, With that connotation of the word ecclesia, rather than the modern religious connotation of church, we can more easily understand how it makes its way into this story about a Jewish Messiah who is leading a movement for a transnational new society. The new society will be established through these alternative popular assemblies. The synagogue was the Jewish equivalent of the ecclesia, but both are Greek words. Synagogue is a Greek word. But ecclesia is the more flexible term, so more available as a term to be used. Now, Jesus says that this new popular assembly for the movement for a new society will be built on Peter, or presumably on Peter's leadership. Peter was a leader in the church up in Antioch, where it is thought that the Gospel of Matthew was written. So he has a prominent role among the disciples in the story. He is a sort of leader, the one to step out of the boat to walk on the water, the one to declare in this passage that Jesus is the Son of the living God, and later he will be the one to pledge to follow Jesus to the death. But it's a strange spotlight to shine on him. Because in all of these endeavors, he fails. Peter does start walking on the water, but then he sinks into the sea and is called you of little faith by Jesus. And right after this declaration of Jesus as the son of the living God, Peter will become a conduit of a message from Satan and will speak contrary to the sign of Jonah. I will cover that in the next episode. And despite his bold statement to do so, he will not follow Jesus to the death, but will deny Jesus three times. Again, this gospel seems to be turning conventional wisdom on its head. Perhaps this is a parody 
of the whole idea that some people are leaders and others just followers. Coming up soon in this story, Jesus will begin teaching his disciples that the first will be last and the last first, that anyone who seeks to be a leader will be everyone's servant, and not to call anyone teacher or father. Jesus gives Peter the power to bind and to loose, which, though it sounds cosmic, was actually the language used to describe judicial and legislative power and authority in ancient Israel. I will explain that in more detail in a later episode. So it does sound like he is giving Peter special power, but in chapter 18, he will give this power to the whole community of disciples. And I will explain more about what that power involves and how it came to be called that in that episode. So what at first seems to be the lifting up of one man above all others as a leader turns out to be another parody aspect in this story. Perhaps it's commentary on the emerging male leadership of the church. The male leaders often declare brashly what they will courageously do, but then shrink in fear when the time actually comes. I know I've been there. But for now, all we know from this passage, without knowing what happens in the future, for now, all we know from this passage is that Jesus affirms Peter and his statement. But this declaration about being the Son of God is not something that Jesus wants to get out at this point. Jesus has no army, and he is running a stealth campaign. He cannot be known, so he tells his disciples to stay quiet. The people already understand that he operates in the prophetic tradition. They even think he might be John the Baptizer, or Elijah, or Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. That's dangerous enough. We all know what happens to those kinds of prophets. John the Baptizer has already been executed by another son of Herod the Great. But if Jesus has no army, if he can't be known, if these temples to dead kings stand while he, alive, must hide, then what sort of hope does Jesus bring? When the author of Matthew is writing all of this down at the end of the first century, Jesus has been gone for 50 years, and the empire still stands strong as ever. Israel has been destroyed, and Christians still often hide. So here we have Jesus hiding. What kind of hope hides itself? Jesus has been talking about the secrets of the kingdom, the secrets of the new society. When and how can these secrets become known? When and how does the liberation actually come? That is, I think, what we find out as the story proceeds. But first, this story will turn in a direction and toward a place the disciples and even Jesus do not want to go. My name is Bert Newton. The music for this episode has been provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. Please share this podcast with your friends and enemies and everyone in between. You can support this podcast through PayPal. Just send the donation to subversivewisdom at gmail.com. Big thanks to all who have done that. You can also email questions and comments and notes of encouragement and secret hopes of liberation that the Holy Spirit has whispered in your ear to be shouted from the rooftops 
to subversivewisdom at gmail.com. Also, please rate us where you can. That also helps bring people to us. This has been episode 42 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Thank you.